Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 60 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I sat down with Dr. Glenn Schwartz, a professor of archaeology at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Schwartz is primarily a Near Eastern archaeologist who has directed excavations in Syria and Iraq and conducts research on the emergence and early trajectory of complex societies in Syria and Mesopotamia. He has conducted fieldwork at Tel Um El Mara in northwestern Syria, focused on the study of an early Bronze Age elite mortuary complex and concentrated on issues of funerary ritual, sacrifice, and elite ideologies. In this episode, we discussed defining the study of urban societies and development of cities in Syria and the ancient Near East, different approaches to and definitions of chronology, the Uruk expansion, and the popularity of Egypt rather than Mesopotamia in the media. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I want to start you out with a really, really easy question, or hopefully easy question, which is, how did you get into the ancient world and archaeology, and where did where did your passion develop? Yeah, that, that is a pretty easy question, I guess, and, and thank you, by the way, for having me. Well, it start, I was very young. I, I, I was, I think, eight years old. And there are two things that I remember. One is there used to be a program on NBC called Saturday Night at the Movies. And this obviously dates me, I mean, you know? And it was movies from the 50s and early 60s that, that were shown on television. So um, one of the things they showed, and I used to watch that every Saturday. And one of the things they showed was a movie called The Egyptian. Did you ever hear of that? I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. Well, it was one of these cast of thousands blockbusters that they made in the 50s to try to compete with television. And it, it was a recreation of, actually, it was based on a, a best-selling novel. And it was best-selling because it was a relatively realistic portrayal of life in ancient Egypt, including sex and things like that. So that, you know, the um, the reading audience was, was enraptured. So, so Hollywood made this movie. And I was enraptured because I'd never been exposed to the ancient world before. And, you know, what is this? These people wearing these strange costumes and talking about strange gods and just the whole, it was like another planet. And I just thought that was fascinating. I thought, you know, they're like us and yet they're in so many ways not like us and they lived so long ago, but we know so much about them anyway. And so I started reading about it. And the other thing was, my brother, who's older than me, he was taking, I guess, history in junior high school. And I looked at his textbook, and the beginning of the textbook was about ancient Babylonia and Assyria. And I thought, okay, this is like the movie, and you know, but the different part of the ancient Near East. So I, I just got, it became my thing. I, I just read everything I could find about the ancient Near East. It wasn't like um, I wanted to dig in my backyard or anything like that. I was just fascinated by the ancient people 
whether we learned about them through archaeology or through texts. And I just kept doing it. it. It was my fixation. And when I went to college, I, you know, took classes and I thought, yes, this is what I want to do. That's awesome. And did you, since the entry point was the ancient Near East, and, and for a lot of us it is, I mean, my, for me, it was my amazing sixth grade history teacher. We just had the most interactive Egyptian unit where we could come into class wearing like a ancient sort of toga <laughs> thing um, and pick Egyptian names. So did you know right then and there that it was definitely you wanted to stick with the ancient Near East or did you ever waver and decide oh well, what if I dabbled into classics Greece Rome somewhere else Nah, it was the ancient Near East for me I don't know why I think in general I tend to be the kind of person that when I find something that I like I stick with it and I just stuck with it and you know sometimes I would wonder like when I was in college okay, this is something that I got fascinated with when I was a little kid. Should I really be doing it now? You know, I'm an adult or becoming an adult. Is this an adult thing to do? But I was still fascinated. So I thought I'll try it. And I still feel like that. That's good. We never want that passion to go away. I mean, it's, um, no, it's great that you still have it. And when you got to undergrad, did they have a department for Near Eastern Studies or was it a bit hard to, to find classes to piece together? Well, you know, being obsessed as I was, I applied to schools that had ancient Near Eastern Studies. So I went to Yale and they had, you know, you could major, well, I majored in archaeology. Why I didn't major in Near Eastern Studies, I can't remember. But anyway, but I took, you know, I took as many ancient Near Eastern courses and archaeology courses as, as I could get away with. So, yeah, I, I mean, I deliberately fixed on places where I could be able to do that. Yeah. And how did you go about picking your specialty once you knew what you wanted to go into was that an easy process because I know for a lot of us we kind of sit there and think oh gosh but there's there's so much within the bigger umbrella I, I don't know what to do hmm. well when I first started out uh, I was especially interested in Egypt when, when I was a kid but when I went to college my advisor Harvey Weiss he was interested in Iran and Mesopotamia and places like that so I got interested in them too. And I also became aware of Assyriology where you study just the ancient Mesopotamian texts. So I realized that you probably couldn't do both. You couldn't be an archeologist and an Assyriologist. And I just thought I wasn't really that interested in grammar. <laughs> I still am not. And I'm, I wanted a more active lifestyle. I didn't wanna just be sitting in an office all day long. I wanted something that you could get out in the world and do stuff. So that's why archaeology seemed more attractive to me. Mm -hmm. And was it a department where you could just do archaeology itself? Or Because I know a lot of colleges these days, they kind of lump it in. And so a lot of departments are art history and archaeology, which made me beg the question, well, is archaeology also kind of art history because you're studying material culture, you're, you're studying objects. So is it a, a type? Do they belong together? Should they be separated? Well, there you get into disciplinary definitions and what separates what discipline from what, what else and 
you know, how discreet are they really? And of course they aren't. There's many interconnections between the disciplines and sometimes you can't tell where one starts and the next, you know, ends. At Yale, I was majoring, they had an archaeology major and there were certain courses that were designated as archaeology. So those were the ones you could take to satisfy the major. It wasn't that, that common then to have an archaeology major. And I think it isn't that common now. But in fact, at, at Johns Hopkins, where I am now, um, we did establish an archaeology major about, I don't know, 15 years ago. It seems to be a success. And so now, like within your work with Near Eastern Studies, you know, I think I, I saw somewhere that you were really interested in, in urban studies. Is that correct? Yeah, m- most of my research has involved urban societies one way or another. I didn't start out thinking I want to do urban societies, but I guess it's it's a large piece of the ancient Near East after all. And I was more interested in that than, let's say, Neolithic or or certainly Paleolithic societies. I, I think the kinds of societies that caught my imagination when I was young were like complex societies as in the movies or, you know, in my, my brother's history book. And they tend to be urban societies. So I, I have been attracted and still am to complex societies or early urban societies. Though one of my early research foci focus foci was actually the non-urban parts of urban societies. So, you know, I, in Syria, my first excavation project that I directed myself was a village, but a village that was contemporaneous with the birth of urbanization. And my idea was to see what's going on in the little settlements at the same time that cities are being formed. There are different ways to approach the issue of urbanization. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's fascinating. And the reason I wanted to clarify and ask was because I think when looking at it from a more contemporary perspective, and I think, um, like urban society, I think it conjures up a specific image. And I wanted to just ask you, you know, what, for those who who aren't familiar and and don't know what it means to study sort of urban societies in the ancient world, what does that mean? I think a lot of people might think, oh, urban societies, is, is that like urban city planning? Is that like people's plumbing? Or is that transportation? So there's a lot of things that could go in and that get mixed with modern definitions of what we think urban society is. So yeah, can you explain to my listeners like what it means in the ancient context? Yeah, well, what it means to me is the kinds of societies that have cities, but there, in fact, there's, there's a kind of genre of societies which have a number of institutions and characteristics that set them apart from other kinds of societies. So the kinds of societies that preceded them and the kinds of societies that may have been contemporaneous with them, but that they happen to be the, the, the kinds of societies that, that appear the most recently in human history. So that means, yes, there are societies that have cities, but they also tend to have states that is large and complex political organizations. So like kingdoms, kings, or eventually democracies, they have social hierarchy. So they have social classes. Usually they have monumental architecture. So, you know, all inspiring are inspiring monuments like the pyramids and ziggurats and things like that. Writing, those are the kinds of society where, societies where writing 
uh, tends to appear. So it's not just cities per se, but, but a whole conglomeration of institutions, technologies, ideas of ways of life that seem to converge together. And why they all converge together and when and where are important questions that we contend with. I mean, it's fascinating. And I mean, obviously we have those all over, but what prompted you to choose Syria? Uh, Well, that was simply, Syria was simply a a consequence of my professor's field work. Uh, Harvey Weiss, my my professor at Yale, he was my advisor when I was an undergraduate. And and then I continued at Yale in grad school. So he, he was my advisor after. And as I mentioned, originally he was doing field work in Iran, but then the Iranian revolution happened. So that was out of the question. So he had to find a new place to do field work. And at first uh, we thought we were gonna work in Turkey, but then he had this crazy idea to to, to go to Syria and see if he could start a project there. And it it took off and he got permission to excavate a a remarkable site, incredible site called Tel Leilan. And I went along with him. So I just, I didn't pick it myself, but it was, uh, I certainly fell in love with Syria and it was a wonderful, wonderful place to do archaeology. And when was the last time you were able to go and conduct field work? 2010. That was my last field season. Of course, I didn't know it would be, I didn't know it would be the last one. Although it's a kind of a cliche among archaeologists in Syria, or it was, that you should treat your field season as the last one, because you'll never know when you can go back. Oh, man. And yeah. Yeah, so it was sad. It was, it was, it's certainly sad and just a tragedy what happened in Syria. And, and none of us would have been able to predict it, I think. Yeah. But there you go. But it's fortunate that you were able to go and actually get field experience there before everything sort of collapsed. Oh, yeah. I was lucky. I, uh, I started working there with Harvey in 1978. So I had, what was that, <laughs> over 30 years working in Syria. And, you know, that was lucky. It was, an arch- it was really an archaeological paradise in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, very, you know, rich results in a number of different periods and different sites. And there was always something exciting new that you're hearing about. And, and the uh, antiquities department was rather easy to work with. They were encouraging... They didn't, you know, present too many obstacles. And the Syrian people were, were wonderful to work with, too. Um, you know, I'd work there. I'd tell other people back here that I was working in Syria. And they say, oh, my God, isn't it dangerous? And, you know, how do you dare to do it? But in those days, you know, it wasn't dangerous. And, and it was, you know, a, a treat, really, to work there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I, from what I gather, because obviously I'm a bit too young to be able to have have gone before it wasn't the safest place to go, but uh, I can only imagine that it was was beautiful and and amazing to be able to be there. So you are very fortunate is what I will say, because I would love to be able to go there, but I don't see that happening anytime Mm. soon, soon soon-ish. Well, not only that, if you went, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it would be different. It wouldn't be the Syria that I knew, Mm -hmm. you know, the the old city of Aleppo. So I used to, my site, my more recent site, Umamara, 
it was about 50, 50 minutes or so drive from Aleppo. So I used to go to Aleppo all the time. And the old city of, and I knew I was lucky you know, just to be able to spend so much time in Aleppo. The old city, you know, where you have this architecture that's 500 years old or older, even a thousand. Mm. And just walking around in, in that environment and seeing the diversity of activities going on and the diversity of kinds of people. But, you know, so much of that was destroyed during the war. Mm-hmm. And Paul, Paul Meyer, you know, a beautiful archaeological site in the middle of the desert. And that's been, so a lot of it, I believe, has been destroyed by ISIS. So it's really, it's just so sad to think of what happened. Yeah, I mean, it, I recently completed my master's research on what I basically called Islamic extremist iconoclastic destruction. Mm. of sacred sites from the ancient Near East. And I remember I got so depressed when I started cataloging through, okay, what was destroyed? Where was it destroyed? How much is gone? Will we ever get this back? Was there a record? And goodness, I mean, I didn't, I don't think I realized how much it was until I saw and then I just kind of went, oh no. (laughs) Yeah. And the amount that was deliberately destroyed is only part of the story because there were all these sites that were plundered in order to sell antiquities. So yeah, in Iraq and Syria both, there's just a huge disaster in terms of cultural heritage. Mm. And now we're left picking up the pieces, trying to pick up the pieces. I mean, it's such a tragedy, but also, I mean, when when thinking, I don't know that much about the ancient Near East because that wasn't my focus, unfortunately. But, you know, we learn about some of these old places and we try to, to piece together you know, timeline. So, so I'm just kind of interested because I saw you also have done some work in Syrian chronology. And for those who don't know what that is, yeah, would you please provide just a nice short description of what is chronology? What is it to study chronology? (laughs) That's not an easy question. Chronology means our understanding of our assessment of time, right? If you're studying the ancient world and you, you know, you're, you're studying an ancient uh, settlement, you want to know how long ago was that? How many years ago was that? And, you know, there are two ways to try to approach it. Approach it. There's relative chronology and there's absolute chronology. So absolute chronology, everybody knows. That's how many years it separates us from whatever you're talking about. How old is a given object? Was it how many years ago was it made or used or how old is a given building or whatever? And then there's relative chronology, which is not concerned with the abs- with the amount of years, the actual amount of time, but simply the order of events. Is object A older than object B? And is style A older than style B? Or is occupation A older than occupation B? So putting everything in order. So, you know, archaeologists, they work on both of those things and they, they try to establish. So they recognize different periods where the material culture, that is the artifacts, have similar styles. And so you might say there's the early Bronze Age. And then within the early Bronze Age, there's early Bronze One, where the pottery is of a particular type. And early Bronze Two, where the pottery is of a slightly different type. And then early Bronze Three. And then you want to know, okay, what calendar years is early bronze one does it belong to? 
so that's kind of superficial introduction to chronology and to Syrian chronology. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to ask and see if you were able to simplify it because it's actually the lead in for my next question, which is helping, I think, I didn't realize how many people didn't understand until I had a re- very recent conversation with someone actually who asked a really great question that I hadn't thought to ask, which was when you study chronology, are you studying mostly the timeline of just one culture and how much of these studies goes into like comparing when different major events happen between cultures? Because we had been in this great conversation about how you know, one big calamitous event had happened. I, let's just, I don't remember exactly which one. So I'm just going to pretend we were talking about the eruption of Mount Vesuvius at Pompeii. And there was like another, you know, big important world event, uh, something going on. And she just said, well, were those near each other? And I said, well, no, no, no. But, and so then I realized we don't do a very great job. We, we teach history kind of in a linear manner for each culture, but in terms of lining them up, we don't do a great job. And so, you know, as someone who does actually study chronology, why is it that we tend to not try to put the the wider things in perspective and say, okay, well, this was happening at the same time as this, you know, the the volcano at Thera was exploding during the second intermediate period of Egypt, or we think, or maybe it was New Kingdom. We we don't really have a concept of when these things happen. Well, I think one reason is that it's difficult. It's difficult to keep it all straight. It's hard enough to, to learn the chronological sequence of a given culture, but then, but then to put it next to another culture and, and try to coordinate them takes a certain amount of mental gymnastics. Whenever I teach a course, uh, it's called Ancient Near Eastern Civilizations. So we review Mesopotamia, then we do Egypt, then we do Syria, Palestine. And by the end of it, I always, you know, I'll say, we'll be talking about some event, say, in the Persian Empire, and I'll say, okay, what's that contemporaneous with in Egypt? And the the students will be stumped because it's difficult to keep it all together in your head. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just a lot, yeah, it's a lot to keep track of, but archaeologists and historians, what we have to do that, we do that. And and, and that job is complicated by the fact that Archaeologists and historians often use different, archaeologists may use a different term to refer to a chronological period. So what's, what, what I call early bronze one, another archaeologist might call the Auric period or might call uh, early bronze two or, or something. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, people working in different regions, people working in Syria who know about Mesopotamian archaeology tend to be tempted to use Mesopotamian chronological terms. And then somebody working in Syria who comes, say, from a Palestinian perspective would be tempted to use Palestinian terms. And then you get them all mixed up and you don't know which which is which. So in fact, there are attempts now to standardize the chronological terms. There's a big project in Europe called um, called Arkani, the, the associated regional chronologies of the ancient Near East. And this is a whole big, you know, many year project funded by the European Science Foundation to try to just standardize the chronology for the third millennium, just for the third millennium in the ancient Near East. And, you know, many books have been produced and it's this whole big deal. 
and it's a very worthwhile project, but it just goes to show you how complicated this all can be. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's all pretty complicated, and especially to those who are not really in the, especially those who are not in the field. But although some of these arguments, I feel they, they reach a bit further beyond those of us just in, kind of up with the latest in, in academia. But I'm curious, since we're talking about time and, and trying to standardize things, I know right now that we have kind of a debate between what terms to use when we date things. I, I know there's the traditional good old BCAD that uh, I grew up using. And then I know there's this newer movement for the BCECE, so before Common Era, Common Era. And as someone who studies time, you know, we're like, why are we arguing about this? And why are we confusing so many people with this? Well, because we're trying to have an, a, a relatively objective terminology. So BC and AD are Christian. It's a Christian chronology before Christ and, and the year of our Lord, you know, is what AD means. So why should our chronology, which is supposed to apply to the entire world, be explicitly Christian? There's actually no good reason. So it does make sense to use BCE and CE. I have to confess, though, that because I grew up using BC and AD, I still do. <laughs> And it's a little confusing. I tell my students, either one is fine. I, I will probably say BC, but you but use BC if you want. And it, it's a, the same thing. And forgive me if I'm, you know, if I'm not correcting myself. It's sort of like, you know, the, the, the movement to try to decolonize the field. Mm -hmm. So not to use terms and concepts that derive from the colonial era and are redolent of that mindset. So it's the same sort of thing to, to try to make our enterprise, I would say, objective, mm -hmm. which is sort of ironic because so many of the people who, who do want to decolonize, they actually think that you can't be objective, <laughs> that, that you know we're kind of doomed to be biased and subjective. But I'm somewhere in the middle on, in, in that particular discussion. I mean, I know some people will really, this is the hill they choose to die on, which dating system they want to use. I've seen some really fierce debate over which one to use. And I will say I grew up with BCAD, but I did actually really end up liking BCECE, which is now what I use. But my big sort of qualm with that is what are we considering common era? And so what would be before the common era, like, like what starts the common era? And, um, you know, my question is always, but isn't that kind of religious too? Like, like, aren't we considering the common era to be after the quote unquote birth of Christ? So how is it? And this is coming yes. from someone who will absolutely never use BCAD anymore, but I'm still just like, yeah, it's a bit problematic. You're right. It, it, you're right. It hasn't actually divested itself of the Christian concept. It's still using the, the putative birth of Jesus as the dividing point. It's simply changing the term. We, we don't use, change the system. It's our, our reckoning, our way of reckoning absolute time. It's not changed, but it's changing the, the terms. So they're not so explicitly religious. It's just such an interesting debate to me. So I, I yeah, I'm, I always like to ask about that if I know someone is... Uh... Yeah, but you're, you're right. We should pick some other time for, for the year one. We should, you know, like, I don't know what. 
the, the first dynasty of Egypt should be our year one. Yeah, I was going to say, like, because I suppose if we try to divest completely and not use any religious anything, we would, I suppose, have to pick what is year zero. Well, there is no year zero, right? <laughs> That's a famous fallacy. But yeah, you have to pick a year one and it's going to be peculiar to some place or culture. It's not going to, you can't pick a universal year one, I guess. Or I guess you could, maybe just like do a coin toss. Use a table of random numbers and say, from now on, what we used to call 600 BC is year one. <laughs> I mean, I just find it fascinating, just like I find other debates about time generally fascinating i mean just because it happened two weeks ago or a week ago whatever it was again started the debates of why do we change our clocks for daylight savings right like like who decided and 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 who picked and yeah all these debates about time are, are fascinating to me and then of course there's a good old concept of time travel which people say doesn't exist but i think it does in the form of if you fly from Los Angeles to New Zealand, you've technically traveled in time because you like skip a day or, or something like that. Uh, well, if you want to believe that, that's fine. You can go on believing it. Oh my God. The, the closest we can get to time travel is basically flying through different times. But if zones. you fly to Australia and call, you know, call somebody on the phone in the United States, they're not, you know, they are not in a, pre, in a previous day. You know, their their life has continued. That's true. Time doesn't stop, but it's just it's a fascinating, fascinating thing to think about. So, and anyway, so I saw somewhere that you have been working on the something called the Uruk expansion. Well, I mean, that's that's so many people have worked on the Uruk mm. expansion. I, um, I've done some stuff with that. I, I'm there's some very you know very significant books written on it, and I'm I'm not the author of either of the of those books you know although there was no there is one book that's um it's a collection uh it's a collection of studies on the York expansion um that came out in 2001 which I, I i did contribute to yeah i mean if you want to talk about the York expansion we could it's not it's one of the things i've been interested in not maybe one of the major ones yeah, I'm just curious because I have a feeling that a lot of my listeners would be familiar, will, would have heard of the two major Mesopotamian cities, Ur and Uruk, but because ancient Near Eastern studies is not the most, it's not the biggest field, the biggest subject that people would have knowledge about, you know, I figured it would be kind of interesting for my listeners to hear about uh, one of okay. these ancient cities. All right. Well, so Uruk in southern Mesopotamia, it's often referred to as the first city, the world's first city, because urban societies in southern Mesopotamia emerge around, you know, 3500 BC or so, and the, for the first time anywhere in the world. And the best known of the first cities is Uruk, and probably the largest and probably the most powerful from what we see. So Uruk, it's where you see the emergence of writing, the first writing, evidence of a socially stratified society, probably a kingdom. This could be debated, but I think it's, I think they have a king. You know, all sorts of other characteristics of what I was calling urban society or, or complex society. But one of the characteristics, one of the things that happens, not only does do cities emerge, 
in southern Mesopotamia with a distinctive type of artifacts and pottery and architecture. But you, you find far away from southern Mesopotamia settlements at the same time in the same time period that have Oruk style pottery and Oruk style architecture and Oruk style written records. So this is what's called the Oruk expansion. And what does it mean? What, what why? Um, why is, is all this material being found so far away from its home territory? And in some, some um, communities, all the material culture, all the artifacts, all the architecture is of Southern Mesopotamian style. So these are understood as colonies. It looks like people came from Southern Mesopotamia and set up new settlements, you know, a thousand miles away from home and recreated their home community. In other places, there's kind of a mixture of local, let's say indigenous material and Uruk style material. And in other places, there's mainly indigenous, indigenous material and just a little bit of Uruk style material. And this is occurring, these expansionist settlements, they're in Northern Mesopotamia, they're in Syria, they're in Eastern Anatolia, they're in Western Iran, they're all, even in Egypt, you could say, they're all over the place. So why? The usual interpretation is that the people in Southern Mesopotamia desired raw materials that were not available in their home territory. And they had to go very far away to get them. And when they did, they set up little communities, trade settlements, colonies, in order to make, in order to, to, to make sure that these raw materials traveled from their home territories back to Uruk. Like metal, there's no metal in Southern Mesopotamia. Uh, and if you're setting up a complex society, an urban society with these important and powerful elites, they want to show how important and powerful, powerful they are. And the way to do that is, say, with copper objects or gold objects, silver objects. Likewise, timber to use to, to roof the big buildings with or um, precious stones, also a marker of status and wealth, you know. So that's the usual explanation. However, some of these colonies, in fact, the best known colonies, are not anywhere near the raw materials that we think that they wanted. So there might have been, there probably were other motivations in addition to trade that were, was, um, you know, that were compelling the Southern Mesopotamians to travel long distances. So that, you know, it's been a much, been a much debated subject in Near Eastern archaeology over the past, I don't know, 30 years or so, 40. I mean, I think it's fascinating, fascinating, because, I mean, these cities are old, I mean, much older than some of the places that we normally are told about. And, well, for one, I don't think that ancient Mesopotamia quite gets its credit, just <laughs> even based on, like, the number of Hollywood and media adaptations of things and, and representations. I mean... Are there any, I, I don't think I've found any good ones, but are there any good films, TV shows, books even written sort of fantasy style about ancient Uruk other than Gilgamesh, you know, and, 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 and like anything from this time period or these civilizations? Well, you're right. I mean, there are very few. There are scads about Egypt, of course. Egypt is so well, well represented in the popular culture and Hollywood movies and all that what with Cleopatra and the pyramids and, and mummies and everything. 
Mesopotamia, unfortunately, is kind of a poor relation. There were a few. In fact, one of the main, one of the most influential movies ever made has major scenes in Mesopotamia. And that's the movie uh, called Intolerance, which was made in the, in the 19-teens by D.W. Griffith. D.W. Griffith is, is kind of, you know, notorious now for his first influential movie, which is Birth of a Nation. In, in cinematic history, you know, it, it played a huge part in the development of cin cinema. But now we, you know, we, we look at it as a racist uh, mm. movie, which I wish it was. But, his, but the, the follow-up to that was this after, but it was a huge financial success, Birth mm -hmm. of a Nation. So with all that money, D.W. Griffith made an extremely expensive, expensive follow-up called Intolerance. And it's about how in, intolerance through the ages and how we really have to be tolerant, which is sort of ironic <laughs> given his previous movie, but he didn't think of it that way. And anyway, what, one of the main foci in, in this movie is Babylon. But right before it's conquest by the Persians. And so the Persians are seen as intolerant people. And the um, the last king of Babylon and his court are, are seen somehow as, as expressions of tolerance. And, and the Babylon and the court of Babylon and the city of Babylon is reconstructed and reimagined to, to an amazing that he spent huge amounts of money on this thing. So yeah, but but that was you know 1917 or something like that. And since then, there haven't been that many. I'm sorry to say, recreations of ancient Mesopotamia. I could there are a few I could think of that where it's part. There was a movie called The Bible, that was made in the 60s by John Huston, you know, famous <laughs> director. And and um, the Tower of Babel is part of that. Mesopotamia does prop up now and again, but not too much. And I always wonder why is it Egypt is pretty foreign, but is it just because Egypt is like so popular because of the waves of Egypt mania that people just are like, okay, cool, we accept it. Is is Assyriology and just generally anything from Mesopotamia is that just considered like a a, a step too foreign, a step too exotic? Like like is it just the the names are too hard? Like I always wonder like why if we do Egypt? What... Yeah, well I think Egyptian art really speaks to the modern sensibility, mm. you know, and they produced a lot of sculpture and a lot of painting. The Mesopotamians didn't produce that much sculpture. And then, you know, a lot of what you have are, for example, the Assyrian reliefs, which are the reliefs of these, I don't know, they look a little static. And, and there are these kings who, who, who are, you know, boasting about their brutality. I'm sure that the Egyptian pharaohs were brutal too, but they didn't make it such a point of pride, you know? And there's just the diversity. There's so much Egyptian art and it's so well done and it's so appealing to the modern eye. And then, you know, this, the great, and it's all in stone, so it survives. The great Sphinx, the pyramids, all in stone, they all survive and they're very, I don't know, they're enigmatic and they're very uh, alluring to the modern mm -hmm. eye. Mesopotamia, most of the architecture was mud brick. It doesn't survive that well. I'm sure they had a lot of wall painting, but it didn't survive because it's not in tombs like the Egyptian paintings were. Yeah, so I think it's a, partly a matter of preservation hmm. and partly just a matter of aesthetics that, that Egyptian art appeals for various reasons to the modern eye. 
in a way that Mesopotamian art may not. Uh, definitely understand. Although, you know, I've always loved Assyrian art. And, and we have such great figures that, you know, you, you learn about once in your history textbook in fifth grade, and then they never teach you about them. But as to the brutality aspect, I could understand that. Although my favorite thing to point out is that, yes, I could point to Hammurabi and his law code is describing some violent things, but the Narmer palette was not tame by any means, boasting about smiting people's heads. Well, you're right. Uh, I'll give you that. <laughs> but then again, they don't choose to portray Narmer. It's always like someone else, but I'm always like, yeah, but we're making a million films about Ramesses. And I'm like, yeah, but slavery. Uh-huh. You know, and I, I would I would love to see certain Mesopotamian. You know, I have a friend who's an Assyriologist and we always agree. I would love to see a Humbaba brought to the screen because that would be amazing. But I don't know if the public would like that. Well, as you put Gilgamesh, as you point out, is a wonderful work of literature. I prefer it to any other ancient work of literature except the Bible, I guess. And certainly I prefer it to any Egyptian work of literature. And sometimes Gilgamesh, there are plays that have been made of Gilgamesh and so forth. But a, a movie, yeah, a movie, I, I don't know. Uh, nobody's tried it, but I think it would be worth it. Or maybe it's an anim probably an animated thing would, would work well. Yeah, they ought to try it. I, I hope so. Although I am curious, did you see the 2004 Alexander movie? Yeah. What did you think of the depiction of Babylon? Oh, I don't remember. I may have seen it on television and just maybe certain parts of it. I, no, no, I rented it. I rented it. I don't remember Babylon. Did they recreate Babylon? They did, because I know that they started it, and then they had that scene where you see them triumphantly marching in, and you have big, beautiful hanging mm. gardens, the walls, and the blue, oh. and the animals, yeah. and the gardens, and it was beautiful. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a sucker for any movie that tries to recreate the ancient world. I really am. And that one... You know, it wasn't such a good movie, I don't think. But, but it, you know, considering that they tried to recreate ancient Persia and everything, you know, I, I was captivated. But I, I don't remember being as captivated as I <laughs> would have wanted to be. It was kind of long. and It was very know. long, and it was kind of terrible. You, you are correct in that. I mean, then there was the whole, they wanted to cast Colin Farrell because he was perfect, looking for the role but then he couldn't drop his very strong Irish accent so they made all the Greeks speak <laughs> with Irish accents and then they had Angelina Jolie as Olympias his mother and then she was the only one with some like weird Mediterranean type of accent and then I was like well this is just painting her as some exotic flower which I didn't like very much and and I guess that like they were sort of hinting at his gay relationships but they didn't really bringing it to the floor yeah it was like a kiss and then they were like oh and then yeah but but i anybody who tries to recreate the ancient world i you know is hero in my book gladiator now gladiator that was a, to me that was an example of a really well made mm -hmm. you know it worked as a movie and it, and it worked as a recreation of the ancient world and, and you know it was just the best you could you could expect i think yeah, no, it was 
very well done. It's my favorite, actually, of the ancient adaptations. Yeah, it's 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 wonderfully done. Mm. Although, I mean, even that one had its problems. But but yeah, you know, we don't we don't have a lot, and uh, I would like to see. I'll put it this way: I'm also a very big fan of ancient world adaptations, as long as they're done sort of well and semi-respectfully. I remember watching some stuff that was completely just. Like that Gods of Egypt movie where they were just like... Mm. I wonder if there are any kids out there who, who would see a movie like that and be inspired to, to get interested in the ancient Near East like I was as a result of seeing the Egyptian. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I personally got into the ancient world a lot because I played a lot of ancient world video games. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I felt those were recreated better than a lot of the media we had at the time. It's, it's, it's gotten better, but it's still not quite there. <laughs> So there are three questions that I generally tend to ask that end the interview portion of the podcast. And the first being, when you were a student, either undergrad or at the grad level, did you attend office hours? I did go to see my professors, yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I did. I I remember, yes, I remember talking. I didn't go just to hang out. I I was shy. You know, I wouldn't just go to hang out. I wish my current students would do that. I mean, in moderation, but but it's not that common in my experience. I don't actually have office hours. I, they're just by appointment because I'm here all the time. Mm-hmm. If you want to come and talk to me, I'm here. But uh, yes, I did. I did. But I didn't go to hang out. I went to talk to them because I had something specific to, to discuss. But yeah, I, sure. Okay. Just, I mean, as a student or now as an educator yourself, do you have a favorite memory or conversation from an office hour appointment or meeting? Probably when Harvey uh, Weiss, my advisor, when I was a junior in college, told me that, that he'd gotten a phone call from a colleague of his at the University of Chicago, who was leading an expedition, an archaeological expedition to Iran, and they asked Harvey if he had any students that he could recommend to, to go on the expedition. And he told me that he had said no, because he, he knew that I was, I was taking classes. They, they were going to go um, in, in December and go you know, from December to March or something. I said, hmm, okay, that's interesting. So I left. And then I went and I had dinner with my friends. And I told them about this. And one of them said, well, just take the semester off. You, know, you could just take the semester off, go to Iran and, you know, have your first Near Eastern field experience. And, you know, why not do that? So I, you know, I looked into it. Could I do it? It turned out it was true. So I went back to see Harvey and I said, I'll, I'll take the semester off. Just like call them, call them before it's too late and tell them that I'd like to do it. And he did. And it wasn't too late. And, and I went. And that was an incredible experience. Oh, awesome. Awesome. And now as an educator yourself, if you had to give a short elevator pitch to students for why they should come to office hours, what would you say? I think if the students are interested in finding out, first of all, what a career in archaeology is like, I'd be happy to discuss that with them, or what a career in academia is like, or just to talk about the ancient world in general, or about people. You know, for me, what is archaeology about? It's learning about people. Why do people do what they do? What do they do? And so really, I, I'm not interested in objects per se. I'm interested in people and the people who use the objects and how they use the objects. 
So just to talk about what, what I've learned about humanity and just to share that with, with students, uh, I would love to do. Yeah, those are some of the things that occur to me. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no wrong answer. I think everything is valid. I mean, I came to my favorite professor when I was at University of Missouri, wonderful older professor, and I lived in her office hours. Pra- practically, I would, um, whenever <laughs> I was on campus, I would just go to her office. And she had a chocolate drawer as well as the tissue drawer if I was having a hard day. And then I could just go sit and um, chat to her. And then even when she had class, she would let me stay in her office and just, study there, chill there, take a nap. Yeah, it was pretty great. I I remember joking. I said, could you just put like a mini fridge and a cot in here and I'll move in for good. I don't need to go home. I'm I'm happy here. Sadly, she had cats at home. So she said, I can't stay here and watch you. No, you have to leave because the janitors will kick you out. Otherwise, I would actually let you stay. (laughs) So some of the best conversations could be had there. That was very kind of her. She was like the grandmother I never had. So it was... I like talking to, to students, but I, I need time to myself, too, to be able to do my research. <laughs> oh, yeah. The constant struggle. having to. Yep. Bless her. I know. I really I kept thinking, you know, maybe maybe I'm here too much. Maybe I should give her time. But bless her. She really that point in her life, she was basically mostly just teaching, didn't really research anymore. So I was like, oh, OK. I can just go hang out with you. Anyway, yeah, she was a lovely, lovely woman. So at the end of each podcast, I have each guest read Shelley's beautiful poem, Ozymandias. And once you've read it, if uh, we could just, you know, hear your thoughts about why do people, why do you think people like this poem? What do you think is particularly enduring about it? Because it's routinely cited as, as, a, as a very impactful poem and so I'm always curious to know you know do do you agree with that assessment okay my time to read yep this mother's day celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from blue nile whether it's for your mom a mother figure or yourself as a mom find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation explore blue nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. 
Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So my reaction to that poem, my assessment of that poem, uh, to me, uh, well, especially it's about the futility and the transitory nature of human pretensions. So this is a, you know, a monument of a king who thought that his achievements and his fame would last forever. And instead it's a, a ruined a set, of, set of broken stones lying in the desert. In general, the futility of human pretensions and more specifically of say, people who think that they are great because of their power and their, their say the political power, the emptiness of tyrannical boasting that people might tremble before you now, but in the not too distant future, you'll be nothing. That's to me is a universal message, which I think will always ring true. And we, we have no, no, no shortage now of boastful tyrants who occupy the airwaves. And I think it's good to remember that it's, it's transitory and ephemeral. Yes. Oh, you hit the nail right on the head. The ephemeral nature of political and other power. I mean, goodness me. Yeah. Monumentality. This poem to me is definitely like massive memento mori. Just, yo, you're going to die. You will die. You know, don't, don't, uh, don't boast monumentality, this idea of legacy, building massive things to get you remembered. But I don't know if that would actually get you remembered. Is it, is it the things you build? Is it the things you contribute? I love how it's an open-ended question. <laughs> and so the last question that I really ask every podcast guest is if we consider our contemporary society, our current world, do we have a type of modern Ozymandias? It could be a person, place, thing, idea, anything, but something that we believe it will, will last forever, that will be enduring. But, you know, realistically in hundred years, will we look back and just say, what, what were we thinking as, as, as a society, as people? Huh. Well, that's a profound question. Do we have a present Ozymandias? I think we have many, many, many people. I won't name any names, but I think you can probably guess. And, uh, you know, many empty boasters who, who exult in their power and fame. In terms of our way of life, I think, yes, similarly, a lot of us think that the modern world that we have created is the only way to live and, and the only way we should live. I, I particularly dislike the, the terms developed world and developing world as if everything has to be like the so-called developed world. And, and if you're not like it yet, you, you're on your way. You should be on your way to do it. But 
I think, you know, we're becoming more and more aware that sort of development is probably not sustainable, that we can't have a planet full of billions of people all driving cars and, and the rest of it. So, yeah, I, I think that um, that poem has many things to, to teach us now. Yeah. And hopefully, hopefully archaeology can help. We can see, well, what, you know, what, what worked in the past? How did people react to climate change, for example? How do you adapt to climate change? How do you try to ameliorate it? And so forth and so on. Yeah. No, I agree with, with that assessment. I, I agree with everything you just said. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's fantastic. So, okay, the, actually, the last, last question is, where can people find you if they would like to follow your research or your work? Probably, um, well, the best place to go would be my department website, Near East Johns Hopkins, probably. And then you get our department website and you get my page and you get the pages for uh, my different archaeological projects, field projects. They each have websites. And that would be a place to start. Or just email me, schwartz at jhu.edu. Great. Well, I will make sure to put the link to your department page and anything else I can find from there in our show notes. So if they would like to read more about you, your work, or contact you, they can do so through there. Great. Perfect. So thank you so much again for joining me on the podcast today. It's been really wonderful getting to talk to you about your research and it's, it's fascinating and speculate about why we, we don't have enough um, Mesopotamian adaptations and, and, and the like. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Great. I hope we can have you back sometime. That would be fun. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings.